everyone. My name is Nick Wignall, and you're listening to the Minds and Mics podcast. On this show, I talk with experts in the fields of psychology, behavioral science, and human potential, and try to see the world through their eyes. How do they think differently about topics as diverse as addiction and mindfulness to parenting and motivation? What do they know that most of us don't? And what can we learn from them to improve our own lives in practical, meaningful ways? Today, I'm talking with Dr. Thomas Horvath, who's a clinical psychologist and addiction specialist based out of San Diego, California. I'm really excited to have Tom on the show because I think he's just endlessly fascinating as a thinker, especially when it comes to addiction, which is a notoriously contentious and poorly understood area in mental health. What I loved about this interview most was how expansive it felt. When it comes to dealing with the problem of addiction, something we all struggle with in one way or another, the most important thing, I believe, is to keep an open mind. People are complicated, and the addictions we all fall into are similarly complicated. Only an adventurous mind will help us solve this problem. I hope you learn as much from this conversation as I did. Tom Horvath, welcome. Glad to be here. So let me just dive right in. What's the biggest misconception people have about addiction? Oh, we're starting with a big question. I like that. I'm just going right for it. Yeah. <laughs> well, excellent. So I, I think, uh, let me slightly uh, alter it. I think the biggest mistake that people make is to engage in various forms of all or none thinking about these problems. And somebody either has addiction or not, or they have to do this, or they don't have to do it. And we should be more... Uh, complex, even more fuzzy in our thinking so that we can look at a range of options. One of the biggest problems, for instance, with somebody saying, uh, viewing uh, alcohol problems as you're either an alcoholic or not, is that then the person who has some drinking problems starts first thinking, well, am I an alcoholic or not? And almost everybody can come up with a rationale for why they're not an alcoholic because they're not as bad as other people they may know. So that could all be true. And then because I'm not an alcoholic, then I guess I don't have to do anything. I guess I don't have a problem. Or I'm just somebody who, you know, over drinks occasionally, but, but it's not a real problem. And I'd rather have people devoting their energy to considering, well, what problems do I have and how could I deal with them? And then more broadly in society, instead of dealing with this separate group of people who are addicts or alcoholics, uh, we then, once we start doing that, we can easily discriminate against them and cause all kinds of problems in addition to the problems they already have. When we have this all or none approach, which involves this labeling process, we then we actually have one of the most difficult outgroups uh, in society right now. It's in respectable company. It's no longer acceptable to be sexist or racist, but it's perfectly acceptable to be very accusatory about addicts and alcoholics as almost a different species of human being, and that's not helpful to solving the problem. So I'd, I'd like people to think actually that that addictive behavior is something everybody has, and at times problematic addictive behavior is something we have. I distinguish those two terms. Addictive behavior is not necessarily problematic. And that we're all in this together, uh, this is a human challenge, and that we could support one another better without creating this class of people who um, 
is the only group that has problems. So kind of on that topic, you, you open your book with an interesting statement, which is nearly everyone has an addiction of some type. Um, and in fact, the, the title of your book, Drug, Sex, Gambling, and Chocolate, <laughs> is a deliberate kind of reference to that idea that there are many different forms of addiction. Um, so why, to you, why is this such an important concept when it comes to thinking about addiction generally? For me, the fundamental, the foundation of addictive behavior is pleasure. If something is pleasurable, it is potentially addictive. Now, many things are pleasurable, but only to a minor degree. So we're probably not going to develop any severe addictive problems with them. But there are some things in life that are highly pleasurable that really grasp our consciousness in a big way, like getting intoxicated with any number of substances or getting caught up in gambling or video games where everything else seems to disappear. So I, again, coming back to the notion of fuzzy thinking, I want people to think along a continuum. There are different levels of intensity for different kinds of pleasurable behaviors. And those levels also change person to person because for instance, about 25% of the population, roughly, based on the informal surveys I do, uh, 25% of the people really don't enjoy drinking very much. So they'll never pursue it enough to, to develop problems. But uh, if you do like something, there is the potential that you get engaged in it so much that you now uh, get your life out of balance. you you stop eating, you stop paying attention to friends, you do whatever happens as a result. And I'd, I'd like people to see that we're really all potentially liable to have that happen to ourselves. And to some extent, all of us have gone down that road, I believe. Uh, if nothing else, then with the three fundamental, I would call them um, the survival addictive behaviors of food, uh, and sexuality and connecting with other people, attach, uh, attachment or attention from others. Those are the survival addictive behaviors, and I see those as the foundation of anything else that arises. They're very pleasurable for most of us. At times, all of us overdo it. I've asked audiences, I'll do a public presentation, I'll say, now raise your hand if you've never overeaten or if you've never done something of a sexual nature that you didn't later regret or that you never did something to get other people's attention that you didn't feel foolish about afterwards. And no, so far, nobody's been brave enough to raise their hand and say, yes, that's never happened to me. It would be hard to believe. I, I think we're all, we're all inclined to have those kinds of problems happen from time to time. And then when you add all the other substances and activities, the world's a pretty... Uh, addictive place. There's just a lot of addictive potential, much more than we would have had when we were hunter-gatherers, when our biology was being established. So the world's become a more dangerous place for all of us. Yeah. What? So, so to play devil's advocate a little bit with this kind of fuzzy thinking versus um, all or nothing or black and white thinking, it. I think everybody can relate to, to what you're saying, where we all feel a little bit of that addictive or kind of compulsive pull towards certain activities that are especially pleasurable. Like, and in particular, those ones where we're a little bit more wired to have a pleasure response for probably for survival reasons. Um, but doesn't, there seems to be just with, with a certain group of people, 
kind of a tipping point where it goes from something that is maybe a little bit compulsive or you spend a little bit too much time on or kind of gets in the way of your work a little bit to something that really starts wreaking havoc in your life. Um, what, what do we, is that, is there at all any kind of qualitative difference there or is it just kind of a, most people don't make it that far up the, the gradual slope? Well, the farther up that slope you go, the fewer people are there. I think that's a factual statement that I hope everybody would agree to. Uh, from my perspective, it's not helpful uh, to say that there's a dividing line in there, that if you're on one side or the other, but I do think it's helpful. I, also, if I'm doing a presentation, I'll put a, a set of words on the board. Uh, starting at the top, I'll say abstinence. So let's take alcohol again, because that's a, the common one. Uh, under abstinence comes moderation. Under that comes what I would technically call subclinical use, but you could call it harmful drinking, risky drinking, alcohol misuse, whatever. Uh, and then I would have mild, moderate, and severe alcohol use disorder, and those are technical terms in the diagnostic manual. So uh, running down from top to bottom again, I've got abstinence, moderation, uh, let's call it harmful use, and then mild, moderate, or severe. I've got six different categories that I could put somebody into. Now, even those categories are a little fuzzy between themselves, if somebody mild or moderate. But if I've got somebody who's severe, they're quite different from somebody who's uh, harmful drinking or mild drinking, and certainly radically different from abstainers or moderators. So the differences can be important. And... Uh, there's often, if I'm trying to help somebody change, it's a very different process in some ways for someone with a severe alcohol use disorder. But the fundamental ideas about helping them cope with craving, maintain motivation, identify and address their other problems, improve their lifestyle balance, improve their relationships, live with greater meaning and purpose. I've just rattled through the six things if I'm treating somebody that I'm going to be thinking about. Uh, I'm going to focus on those, whether the person's problems are very mild or they're very severe, but the kinds of things I would do within each of those categories might might be substantially greater for the severe problem. So yes, there's there are gradations and it's worth thinking about them. I just don't think there are any clear definitive lines between any of those categories. So you also argue that um, addiction is an extreme version of a habit. Um, I think that's, I mean, as a psychologist, I, I tend to agree. Um, but I think that's a surprisingly controversial statement. Um, could, could you talk a little bit about that and, and, and then maybe why you think it's sort of controversial to think about addiction like that? It's always surprised me that, that this was controversial. There, there are major habit components to any problematic addictive behavior. When you talk to anybody who's engaged in whatever they're engaged in. They have certain ways of doing it and times and people they're with. And um, that's, there's a lot of habit there. And that habit tends to develop over time. You, the first few times you, let me just stick with substances. You, you use a substance and gradually you settle into some kind of routine. So there, there is always that component, but often, um, even our ordinary habits presumably have some degree of pleasure associated with them. And as I was writing that book, uh, I, 
I started thinking about brushing my teeth. Could that, I would, is it as a mental exercise, could that be an addictive behavior? And this may not be true for everybody, but I experience a certain degree of pleasure from, at least when I'm finished brushing, I feel like my teeth are cleaner, my mouth is cleaner. Okay, that was a good thing to do. Uh, and then I thought, well, if I didn't do it, I would experience something like a craving. It would be very minor. But uh, I'm always looking to connect these things rather than make them distinctly different experiences. So I, I think it's helpful to people. Uh, well, to back up to one other point, there's going to be many different ways that people get uh, over these problems. So if the way I'm describing isn't particularly helpful to somebody, it doesn't upset me. Um, I've tried to articulate a, a particular approach that connects addictive behavior and pleasure and habit. And if that's meaningful, I, I hope that people use it. I tried to articulate it as clearly as I could uh, in that book. Uh, but it, it may not resonate with quite a few people, but it has resonated with some. So I've been pleased to see that. Yeah, I just I feel like it's such a empowering idea that you know you and and you make this point really well in the book, but that people can use n- normal processes of of change and habit building to work on their addictions, even very severe addictions. Um, it doesn't require necessarily a completely different set of strategies and techniques. Is that is that is that right? Like is that is that how you kind of think about it? It is a foundation of of how I work. I want people to think I have already solved all kinds of problems in my life and I have built up a repertoire of skills and beliefs and capacities and we're going to bring those to bear. <clears throat> Not only the ones that seem completely disconnected from problematic addictive behavior, but even within their addictive behaviors, I will often be asking people, well, when's the last time you controlled her? Or or when's the last time you didn't act on an urge? When's the last time your motivation felt strong? And and how did you do those things? I think that um, everybody already has all the seeds of success within the things they've already done. And part of my job is to help them reconnect to that. It's a little bit Similar for to those who might have ever come across it in Plato's writing, there's this theory that you don't actually know anything. You you learn by remembering what you already knew. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's an interesting idea. So I, partly based on that, I'm saying you already have the solution here. We just have to improve it. And uh, that can be very empowering to people because they know I don't know their history. I have to rely on them completely. And when they are remembering that, oh, I really did manage to do that, um, that gives them a big boost for moving ahead and, and applying whatever they did to the future. It seems like one of the, the common counter arguments to this idea that um, that addiction is, is fundamentally a habit and, and so therefore is um, amenable to common change techniques and habits or in patterns it's this idea of control, right? And you hear this a lot in kind of 12-step AA um, sort of philosophies where there's a, at some point, there's a, there's a kind of a tipping point where you, you lose control, like you don't have control anymore. And and so therefore the, well, there's all sorts of implications that come out of that, right? Abstinence is, is, and thinking of yourself as an addict and 
Um, and that somehow that it's that lack of control that differentiates a normal habit from an addiction that, that really makes them um, two different things, di- different in kind, not just in degree. What, how, how, how do you sort of uh, respond to that sort of a claim? You know, I, this is very common, and, and you're actually summarizing that perspective very nicely. So that gives me a good way to respond to it. Uh, the loss of control, strictly speaking, and actually the diagnostic manual changed its language about this. Uh, the fifth edition and maybe even the fourth edition talks about impaired control rather than loss of control. Because uh, I'll remind people of what is sometimes called the gun to the head test. If, if I give you your first drink and then I pour you your second, but I hold a revolver to your head and tell you I'm going to blow your brains out if you drink the second one, I'm sure you're going to have full control as long as the revolver's there. And I've I'm not going out for drinks with you, Tom. <laughs> right. And I, I actually know someone who was once in a somewhat similar situation because her drug dealer thought that she had snitched on the police and the police were about to come in. And she, it, was a, it was an instantaneous cure from her substance problem. It was quite interesting. But it, the timing, getting the timing of those sorts of situations just right is difficult. So I, I don't recommend it as a practical matter. But I believe that everybody understands that in the case of the consequences being immediate and being severe, that we would all have control. So establishing that as the foundation, then when we talk about people having loss of control or impaired control, what we're describing is the extent to which something has to get their attention in order for them to decide it's important enough not to drink. And in someone with severe problems, very little gets their attention. They, you know, they'll run out of the house if it's on fire, and they'll not drink if somebody's holding a gun to their head. But otherwise, it's very difficult to come up with things that actually get them to stop. But they will if you come up with something. So the, the measure of the problem somebody has is um, how much does it take to get their attention. And some people, it, it is quite a lot. But but again, I don't think it's like a reflex where, where once you're triggered, it, it has to happen. It's not like popping somebody's knee and watching their foot kick out. You know, it's a different, different kind of mental experience. And I think there again is that I'm trying to go against that all or none thinking. And here, when I pursue this with people, they will almost always remember times when they exerted control because uh, something else was more important. And even with the bingers, uh, I pursue the, the tactic of, well, why did you stop? Why didn't you just keep going? And they always had reasons to stop. Well, I needed to be so-and-so, or this was coming up. Um, <clears throat> so there, from their own experience, again, they've demonstrated some degree of control. And, and then once we've established that some control exists, our job is to build upon it. Hmm. Yeah. You know, in, in your book, you talk a lot about the, the idea of self-control, um, which I think is a, obviously a super important concept. I mean, just for life, yes. <laughs> but certainly for addiction. Um, but it's also kind of a loaded term, right? It's one of those terms I, in my work as a therapist, I feel like people have a lot of, um, their own kind of associations, often kind of emotionally laden associations with, with that term. So 
for you, let me ask you, what's your favorite metaphor for thinking about self-control? It's like everybody has kind of a metaphor for self-control. How do, how do you think about self-control? Well, I, it, I tell people that, you know, you probably have come here on the assumption that I'm going to help you change your character, improve your character, and enhance your self-control. And that's all true to a degree, except I'm mostly going to work on how to change your situation so that your situation improves your behavior for you, which is a very behavioral approach, actually. So yes, there is willpower. And yes, it is important. But it's the last thing on the list that we want to rely upon. Uh, It'll get you through um, if necessary. So one of the metaphors I use in this is the distinction between a cold-blooded and a warm-blooded animal. And human beings are warm-blooded animals, meaning that if the room temperature is 50 degrees or 90 degrees, my internal body temperature is going to be the same. I can maintain that temperature despite environmental fluctuations. Except if you've seen the movie Titanic, you know that when you get in water that cold, you're only going to stay alive about three minutes because you can only tolerate so much fluctuation. Your self-control is only so good. And most of us prefer to be in a room around 70 degrees uh, because that's what's comfortable. So if I'm helping somebody overcome uh, a problematic addictive behavior, we look at how to structure the environment so that eventually some habitual behavior builds up that these, uh, well, first of all, after a few months, typically craving will diminish, if not go away entirely. New ways of living will come about and hopefully primarily within the first three months, but then uh, with some extra effort, possibly for even a year or two, and in a severe case, possibly longer than that. But rather, uh, generally rather quickly, a whole new way of life has built up so that self-control is no longer needed. It's uh, become habitual behavior, and habitual behavior runs by itself. So yes, we're, we're... we're building self-control in a sense, uh, but would you say that somebody who's got really good habits and hardly ever thinks about them is self-controlled or they just have a well-structured life? I, I don't think that willpower for a lot of people is actually used very much. They've just over time built up a, a way of living that's, that's healthy and they look, you know, it looks like they're highly self-controlled, but in fact, that's not what's operating behind the scenes. Yeah, I like that. Thinking of it as a, it's kind of a fail. Like it's a last resort, and you want it just in case, um, but you you don't ever want to have to rely on it. Um, and that trying to think sort of creatively and resourcefully about structuring your environment in such a way so that you don't even need it is is really worthy of a lot of attention. Yes, and, effort, and to tack on one more point to that, if someone is familiar with. Uh, addiction treatment, almost any place, there is usually a component of what's called relapse prevention or recovery maintenance. And in the early phases of doing that, so you've just been through some intensive treatment program, and now you're going to go out to a lower level of monitoring and intensity. And the focus is all on managing your environment. You're going to figure out how to get through high-risk situations. You're going to avoid high-risk places. Uh, you're going to have people with you at certain times. You're going to, to each each person's plan is different, but you could end up uh, avoiding parties or uh, 
not having alcohol in your home or asking your partner not to drink for the next three months. All of these things are fundamentally ways to change the situation so that you don't need self-control as much. And um, that's already a very well-established part of almost any addiction treatment program. Um, while we're on the topic of uh, kind of cravings and self-control, you have this great concept. I'm not sure if you coined it or if, or if you got it from somewhere else, but what is urge surfing and why, why do you think it's so important for the idea of um, working through addiction? I believe that term comes from Alan Marlat, as far as I know. And um, the idea behind it is that when you get an urge or a craving, some people distinguish those, I don't. Uh, that you'll feel it rise up and then you'll it will peak over some period of time and then ride away. So rather than giving into it, uh, if you're picturing yourself as a surfer, you're just sort of riding along with it until it finally hits the beach and dissipates. Uh, I sometimes think of it in a slightly different way. If I'm out a little bit in the ocean, and I can feel the waves coming through underneath me. I rise up for a while in that wave, and then it comes down again. Uh, the fundamental notions about craving are that it's time-limited. It's going to go away if you wait long enough. It's not going to harm you. It's not doing any brain damage or body damage to you. And it doesn't force you to do anything. So you're not required um, to use. And I occasionally come across people who think that, that they are at the mercy of a craving. Craving shows up and, and they have to act on it. And instead you just write it out. And this, here again, somebody's history is important. Uh, they've done this many times and they just didn't give themselves credit for it. And sometimes I'll ask people to think if they've, uh, well, most people now over the age of 50 have had a colonoscopy. And in order to have a colonoscopy, you've got to fast for a significant amount of time, long enough that your hunger typically goes away, although at first it sure does not feel like it. Um, and that's a great example of how even hunger, which is a, a body-based, survival-based craving, will go away if you give it enough time. And even if you don't want to try that yourself, you can read accounts of people who have fasted entirely from food for days or weeks for whatever reason they're doing it. And they all report that their hunger has gone away. Now, they, they feel differently for sure. But if that craving will go away, then any other craving is going to go away also. And you just ride it out. Yeah. And what I love about this idea is that you can, you can start incredibly small. I mean, it's something I uh, – so I work primarily with um, folks with trouble with anxiety. Um, and so and, – and this is sort of the basis for – treatment of any kind of anxiety, just like panic attacks is, um, we call it exposure, but it's the idea that in a way you have sort of a, your, your model or your belief about what's going to happen to the way I feel in the future is a little fuzzy in that you, we kind of expect I'm going to keep feeling this anxious. I'm going to keep wanting alcohol this badly, and it's going to keep feeling this aversive. And a lot of people get in the habit of instantly doing something to make the craving go away. And the, it seems to me the problem there is you never get to learn what happens if you give those cravings or those any kind of aversive feeling a little bit more time. And if you can start to do that, you, you can kind of prove to yourself, oh yeah, cravings, do, as much as it feels like they don't, they do have this kind of wave-like structure where on their own, without any input from me, 
they will kind of subside on their own. Um, so I think it's kind of a fascinating uh, analogy there, how it works. It, it works kind of in, in both our disciplines. Um, I, I see that as an exact parallel. Uh, and occasionally I get somebody who's got panic attacks and drinking. And I say the same things you were just saying. It's, it's true about craving and panic. It's time limited. It doesn't actually harm you. It feels like it might, but it won't. And it doesn't force you to do anything. You don't have to drink. You don't have to run out of grocery stores. You are going to learn how to wait this out. We call that exposure therapy. And we can do it by the flooding method where we just throw you at it all at once. Most people don't want to do that. So we do it step by step, little by little. And we can't control it exactly, uh, but we can control it enough and you can be successful enough that gradually you'll build up your confidence that you don't have to act on a craving and you don't have to act on a panic. And after you've done that a few times, your nervous system just gets kind of bored of proposing panic and proposing craving because you're not acting on it. So they go away or almost entirely go away. Yeah, so these this is kind of a great in, in terms of well, how do you deal with something aversive like a like a craving? We've talked about how sort of the the first line really is sort of environmental management, you know, sort of not setting yourself up to even need willpower or too much self control. But then you know, if you do find yourself in those situations, being able to uh, surf the urge, so to speak, um, and maybe you can build up to that in small bits. But I, I want to transition a little bit to talking about what seems like the more um, kind of long-term approach, you have this great line in the book where you talk about um, overcoming addiction as being about managing, but also transforming desire as yes. opposed to just trying to eliminate it. Can you talk about that a little bit? Cause I, I think that's such an important idea. Well, we all want to lead satisfying lives that have some serious and long-term kinds of satisfactions, but also some short-term pleasures. One of my comparisons, I say to people, if you take all your money and you put it into retirement, um, you will starve to death in a few weeks. So this is no way to live. Um, you need to balance your time, your expenditures, your energy between some balance of short-term and long-term. And that means desire is not your enemy. It's, it's how you live. You could say it's your friend, but it's just, it is how you live. You want things. But just because you want something doesn't mean that that specific thing is what you should get. And originally, cognitive therapy... Uh, as developed by Beck, focused on automatic thoughts and the things that pop into your head and how they might not be true, they might not be helpful, maybe they should be considered a moment before you decided to act on them or believe them. And when I was working with a number of people around the country and developing what you could call the cognitive therapy of, of addiction problems, we added this additional category where just because you have this impulse or urge or desire to pop into your mind. It doesn't necessarily mean that you should act on it. You've got to see it in a larger framework. So your automatic thoughts that pop in momentarily, you want to see those in the broader system of your beliefs. And in your, if you get an impulse that pops into your mind, you want to see that in the broader context of what are all the other things that are important to you that you desire. So we're not trying to eliminate thinking just because some thoughts are negative. We're not trying to eliminate impulses or desires just because some of them are problematic. 
this is what drives us. This is, makes us different than robots is we actually want things. And as we um, grow older and mature, not nece- one doesn't necessarily happen from the other. You could grow older and not mature, but if you grow older and mature, then presumably your life is starting to think across larger time frames and you're becoming a little less self-focused and you're dealing with reality as it is. And that leads you to experience different kinds of satisfactions. And it might not be quite the intoxication, say, of alcohol or the rush of cocaine or meth, but it's people who have achieved a level of maturity do find that way of living very satisfying. So Ultimately, I'd like to help people get on that road and and stay there as far as they uh, are able and willing to take it. Um, you say that fundamentally, addiction. Like one way to think about addiction is that it it's it's best thought of as a relationship between an individual and a you know a substance or an activity. I, I think that's really interesting. I think a lot of us, when we think about addiction, we think about the thing. You know, we think about alcohol, we think about sex, we think about chocolate, gambling, all those things. But this idea that it's addiction is a fundamentally kind of a relational phenomena. I wonder, can you unpack that a little bit? Like what you mean? Sure. By that? And as far as I know, this idea originally is stated by Stanton Peel, although it, it may have come earlier. His, uh, uh, his first important work was Love and Addiction. And he talks about this. If we start thinking that alcohol specifically is the problem, then um, it misleads us because it leads us to things like wanting to try prohibition or forbidding children from drinking any alcohol at all. I actually recommend that parents drink with their children in very small amounts in controlled conditions so that they learn about alcohol, as Jewish culture does, um, rather than wait till they're 21 and throw it at them all at once. We want we want the relationship to be healthy with the, whatever substances somebody is going to be with, and to recognize. Uh, well, for instance, if I uh, the same drug or virtually the same drug that I would get after surgery is also a drug that I might be able to buy on the street, but when I get it after surgery, I probably deal with it just fine, and eventually give it up when the time is right. Uh, But if I get it on the street, I'm getting it in a different context. It's a different kind of relationship. And that drug might cause me a lot of problems. But there's a lot of older people getting surgeries, and younger ones too, and they don't develop addiction problems. Now, some do, and particularly if they've had a pre-existing history of addictive problems, that can be a challenge. But it's not the drug itself, it's not the activity itself, it's something about that connection between the person and their specific circumstances, their specific biology, all this comes together to create a relationship that could be problematic. We've all maybe at times had difficult relationships with people in our lives, yet we know these same people who we thought were just so difficult to get along with maybe had other relationships that worked just fine. It was something about the two of us that didn't work out so well. And that can happen with substances too. Yeah, it's sort of related to another point you make, which is that addiction is always symptomatic of other problems, Um, which also kind of ties in with the idea of 
it's the relationship or, or in the way I think of it as sort of a behavioral psychologist, it's about the function. It's about what purpose does the substance or the activity serve? You know, maybe it in one, in one setting and environment, it alleviates your physical pain so that you can walk and do your physical therapy after surgery. Right. But in another situation, you might learn, Hey, this is a really good way to not feel anxious when I go to parties with people I don't know. And when the function changes, all of a sudden your relationship to it changes and, and it can easily transform into something that is helpful to something that's profoundly unhelpful. I should be interviewing you. That was very well stated. I completely agree. <laughs> well, thanks. Um, okay. And, and, okay. One last, we're going to do a little, uh, we're going to do a little halftime segment here in a second, but, but since you mentioned that this idea of um, sort of, inoculating children to uh to certain traditionally ad- potentially addictive substances like alcohol yes. like drinking with your kids in of course in moderate doses so that you can sort of teach them how to relate to it um in, in a way that's healthy on that topic um what do you think about the question of legalizing recreational drugs? This is a hot topic, especially with with marijuana obviously what's what's your take on that? I was fortunate enough a- Little, a little, little question yeah, about legalizing it's, drugs. <laughs> I have thought about this a lot. I fortunately, a couple months ago, was able to go to Portugal and, and talk with Dr. João Galau, who is the um, manager of their decriminalization program. And decriminalization and legalization are really different tracks. In their decriminalization system, all these substances are still um, not approved uh, let's call them illegal, but you can't get in any serious trouble You and actually never become a criminal by just virtue of possessing or using small amounts of these substances. The consequence of this change, which they did roughly 19 years ago, uh, has been a dramatic improvement in Portuguese society, dramatic reduction in HIV. Substance problems are uh, down 50%. Substance use is slightly up, but substance problems are down 50%. And HIV, they had practically a thousand cases one year, 20 years ago. Last year, I think they had 36. Uh, you know, that's a dramatic improvement. So uh, I, I have begun to think of decriminalization as a politically viable option for the United States. I know that. Uh, you know, this this is a plan that would have to get through legislatures at the state level or at the federal level. How this would happen exactly, it's going to be a lot of discussion. Uh, legalization is a step beyond that. As a someone approaching this from a sort of purist perspective, I would love to see that. But um, there's no good example of it in the contemporary world. All of these substances were legal. 100, 200 years ago, depending on the country, uh, and problems were getting worse. That's why we created all these laws like the 1914 Harrison Narcotics Act. So uh, whether legalization is a good idea, I think that's a legitimate debate. Decriminalization, as Portugal has practiced it, it's really hard to argue against that at this point. And we're probably always going to have some mix where some substances are legal and like alcohol, I suspect that that um, cannabis will end up being legal everywhere, and and given that it's a relatively 
harmless drug, although not entirely, depending on the person and the relationship. Um, I, I would I support the continuing uh, legalization of cannabis specifically. Now, in the middle of these interviews, I like to take a little halftime break um, and ask some more lighthearted, but perhaps not less significant questions. Um, feel free to pass if you really want to, um, but I'm gonna I'm gonna shoot some questions at you and let's see where this goes. What's the best place to get Mexican food in San Diego? Ha! So this is like a smart recovery meeting where we ask questions <laughs> and no one is required to participate, which is good. Uh, you know, I don't know that I've ever had bad Mexican in this town. Um, I, I, I think you choose your restaurant partly on how much money you want to spend and what kind of atmosphere you want. There's an upscale one a couple miles from here that's just really nice. Um, the Red O I particularly like. And then I've eaten on, uh, they just walk up joints where you can't even sit down. You just get your burrito and go. Um, and uh, there seems to be a generally high level of food expertise with respect to Mexican food. I can't say about all of them, but Mexican in San Diego is, is quite good. And what's distinctive about San Diego Mexican food compared to other sort of regional varieties? I guess just because we're, you know, 20 miles from Mexico. I don't know, but... Um, mm. It's, closer to the source. We're very close to the source. Who's the better thinker when it comes to addiction, Plato or Aristotle? Hmm. I have never been asked this question before. I have not thought about it. I'm going to guess for the moment Plato. I think uh, if I've been arguing that we ought to have some fuzzy categories, Aristotle will tolerate that because he's he says you shouldn't try to bring to a subject any more precision than you're capable of applying to it. And any subject involving human behavior is going to have some imprecision. Um, but on the other hand, um, Aristotle's book, um, the Nicomachean Ethics, really, I have sometimes referred to it as the world's first self-help book. And he talks about values and building up habits. I don't call it uses that term exactly, but it's, it's still a book worth reading. So I'm going to equivocate and say they're, they're both have made important contributions on this subject. In a different life, what career might you have chosen? Hmm. Architects. Um, that's always appealed to me. City planners. That's, that's a related field. I, I think of myself as a teacher. I could have done all kinds of teaching. I think in my fantasy, I might have become a movie director. Uh, but I'm not sure what kind of movies I would have done. What do you think are some common misconceptions people have about you or your work specifically? Um, anybody who's made the effort, and it doesn't take but a few minutes really to just think about and, and maybe like in, in my workbook I created a, in Appendix A, a, a list of, or, or I put together all the chapter summaries. So there's 13 chapters. In three pages, you can essentially read the whole book. Anybody who's willing to take the time to read that, I think gets what I'm trying to do, gets that this could be helpful to some people. I have run across folks who were so embedded in a 12-step disease model perspective that they have stopped thinking and 
some of the things that I'm describing, I really, I've spent a lot of time thinking this stuff through. Some of it's really, I think, inarguable. The solution when people are disagreeing about some of this stuff is that some of these concepts apply more to some people than others. So for instance, um, I think that uh, the disease perspective on addiction, if we take that as a kind of medical perspective, is relevant to everybody to some extent, uh, but also the moral perspective uh, is relevant to everybody to some extent. Most of the people that I see coming into treatment are coming partly because they have become morally disgusted with themselves. And I don't want to ignore that. I think, yes, I get it. You're, you're upset. You want to improve your own behavior, and it's a motivator for you. We're going to work with that. Uh, if somebody goes to the pure medical disease model, they want to dismiss that, and I don't think that's a good idea. But when somebody hears me say that, oh, yeah, when people come to treatment, they're partly coming because they're upset with themselves, I think the average person can understand that easily enough. Um, but if they're locked into a very rigid way of seeing things, then, then it's hard. So, yeah, for folks who have a rigid perspective about addiction, I think I get misunderstood regularly. Not just me, lots of other people. Stanton Peel and others, have uh, the Sobels and, and others in the world, have gotten much more abuse than I have. I've gotten a little, but those trailblazers really, really created a trail that uh, others could follow. What's a good book you've read recently? Doesn't have to be about addiction. Be uh, I liked *Sapiens* by um, Harari, uh, looking at um, humanity as a whole and the kinds of trait—sort uh, of a summary of human traits. Um, that was a great book. I'm still working my way through *Thinking Fast and Slow* by uh, Kahneman. Uh, with so many people in the world. There's just an incredible number of good books to read. Yeah. Uh, okay, we're going to um, round out this halftime with a little uh, quick game of overrated versus underrated. You ready? Okay. Philip Rivers, quarterback for the Los Angeles Chargers, formerly <laughs> the San Diego Chargers. Pass, I don't know enough. Okay. Self-help books. Um. Uh, in my own life, they have been very important. Uh, so I think, if anything, they're underrated. I also like to put a plug in for uh, the Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapy, abct.org, which has a vetted list of self-help books. So if you want a self-help book, you can search for them by title, by author, and by category. A self-help book that's been looked over by serious psychological professionals who have said, this book's got good stuff. Um, I think uh, I think that's a great list. I'm proud to say that that my book, Sex, Drugs, Gambling, and Chocolate, is one of the books that's there for addiction. So I think it's a great resource. Uh, so yeah, maybe underrated. The Serenity Prayer. Um, it's not overrated. I use it myself. I think it's very useful. I've reformatted it. I used to talk about the courage intention. I intend to have courage to change the things I can, serenity to accept the things I cannot, and wisdom to know the difference. Um, I think it's, it's a useful concept, a, a useful uh, prayer. Hamilton, the musical. I gave away my ticket to our neighbor so that my wife and neighbor mm. could see it. 
because I knew the neighbor really wanted to go. <laughs> so I have not yet wow. seen it. Good for you. <laughs> Cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, overrated. Only because some people think that it is the best approach or the only approach. It is an approach. It's the approach I typically use. Uh, but by the time somebody's been doing therapy for at least 40 years, in my case, 45, um, a lot of influences seep in. Uh, I have always, for some years now, been uh, persuaded by Scott Miller, who is a psychologist who studied therapy as a whole. And the conclusions that he and others draw that psychotherapy results have not gotten any better over the last 40 or 50 years, despite the uh, developments of a number of new therapies. There's 300 some psychotherapies, but you still find people doing some version of Freudian psychotherapies uh, and leaving aside psychoanalysis, which probably shouldn't be called a psychotherapy. Uh, any therapy that actually tries to specifically alleviate human suffering and has some basic standards about it, almost all of them will eventually, when the studies are done, claim to be evidence-based and almost uh, apparently they're all going to work about the same. Uh, that's the conclusion I draw from six or seven studies now that have on a specific disorder compared a range of treatments and found it very difficult to, to say that any any treatment works better than any other. I'm still waiting for some possible exceptions because I can't imagine treating anxiety without some form of exposure, but it might not have to be part of the treatment itself. It might be the, the exposure that <clears throat> the client does on her or his own outside of the session and not so much a focus of the session itself. So if I think CBT can be overrated if um, people think it's the best or the only, but otherwise it is a, it's a great set of tools uh, and I'm, I'm happy we have it. Uh, last one. California, overrated or underrated? Underrated. It is a great state. <laughs> I agree. I'm from California. <laughs> awesome. All right. Let's, uh, let's get back to the game. Um, what do you make of the idea of an addictive personality? This is a phrase I hear all the time. And as a professional, I'm not, I'm not quite sure what to make of it. The only, for, for a number of years, several decades, I think, psychologists who knew the literature said there is no such thing that there's no trait that is consistently found in people with addictive problems and less so in other people. More recently, it appears to me that impulsivity is a trait associated with addictive problems, which is actually making complete sense because uh, what we mean by an addictive problem is that you focus on a short-term satisfaction at the expense of a long-term satisfaction. The opposite of that is willpower, where you ignore your short-term desires and focus on your long-term desires. And an impulse is that short-term desire. So if somebody's got this pattern of, as soon as something pops in my head, I'm going to do it, well, that's, if they're not having addictive problems already, it would seem they're going to have them shortly. So if there is an addictive personality, it's somebody who is generally impulsive. However, even in these individuals, nobody's impulsive about everything. So 
if I were helping such a person, I would work to find what are the parts of your life where you're relatively self-controlled and how do you do that? And it's because they pay a little more attention to some longer term considerations. And then we're just going to try to map that over to the considerations involved with uh, their addictive problem. One of the great phrases in your book is the idea of a positive addiction. What, what is a positive addiction for people who haven't read the book? So any addictive behavior is about getting pleasure. And if your short-term pleasure starts interfering with your long-term well-being, that's what we mean by an addictive problem. But suppose that your short-term pleasure, let's say it was exercise, also contributed to your long-term well-being. Now, you could exercise so much that it actually interfered with your well-being, but you could do it moderately, have it be pleasurable, uh, and now you've got this great uh, one-two combination where it's good in the moment and it's good in the long run. And that's what I would call a positive addiction. And, and the, the, there's a degree to which there's even a compulsive quality to it. You know, you would get upset if you couldn't do it, but it, because it furthers, you know, a, a value or kind of a long-term pleasurable goal. It's yeah. Like, I, I, when I, I'm kind of addicted to exercise and when I'm, I'm not able to get it in, I feel the difference. It's a kind of craving as I'm not serious and doesn't hurt me at all, but uh, I do notice it. Yeah. Sometimes I think this is the most, and I, I'm, I'm not an addiction specialist in general, but, but in general, thinking about helping people work through um, mental health struggles of, of any kind. Sometimes I think that this idea, we focus a lot, understandably, on fixing what's wrong but i think a really underrated skill that i feel like i need to get better at to help my clients is helping people cultivate um the these things like positive addictions these things okay you, you kind of taken or, or you've addressed that what's wrong but how is that enough like I, I think life is more about it's about more than just fixing what's wrong it's about going after what's right and that that can be a very that can be a surprisingly hard thing to do when you, if you've been caught in a cycle of all this stuff I'm doing wrong and how do I fix it? I completely agree. I, I will tell my clients sometimes. So at the beginning here, we're just going to try to put this fire out. Um, but what's most important is we're going to build um, the positive life that you would like to have. And we may have to spend some time figuring out what that is um, and working towards it. And then the factor that will tell us whether this is going to work longer term or not is the degree to which you will be persistent and stay with this. Sometimes people solve the, apparently to themselves, solve the immediate problem within a few days or a few weeks, and and then they forget about it, and then they actually need to focus on it a little longer than that because it takes a certain amount of time for habits to be established and to be clear about what the long-term goals are. But yeah, the, the immediate goal is to stop these problems, but the long-term goal is to build a life that's so good that you can't imagine you'd want to go back to those problems because I'd miss out on all these wonderful things that I'm having now. And uh, another way I, I'll say that to people is that people show up trying to run away from something, but by the time they leave, I hope they're moving towards something. And th that becomes then a way of life. One of the best little nuggets I've I've taken from your book that's helped immensely with with numerous clients in my own practice um, 
not even related to addiction necessarily um, in a technical sense, but you make this great distinction, and I don't know if it's yours or someone else's, but between slips and relapses. Um, can you real quickly, what's the difference between a slip and a relapse? And why is the distinction important? So yeah, this is, I don't know where that distinction came up. It was not mine. Um, and it's been important uh, among those of us who um, think outside of a, of a 12-step disease model perspective, because uh, however big your move in the wrong direction was, it could have been bigger. And we're trying to focus on how you managed to stop it when you did, or if you're still in it, uh, how you're going to be able to stop it now. And so th these are really fuzzy terms. Uh, is a slip a day, a week, a month? Is a relapse a month, six months, a year? It doesn't really matter. But I'm usually trying to persuade somebody, look, this is just a slip. Let's get back on track. What's also helpful for that is not having this thought that, uh, well, I, I was abstaining for 10 years and then I drank for a day and now I've got one day of sobriety, um, which is sometimes occurring in a 12-step in a group. Uh, I would say if you've just been abstaining for 10 years and now drank for one, you're very different than the person who's just been drinking for 10 years in one day. And let's give yourself credit for, for what you've accomplished and just go back to to building on that. So it's, it's a little bit of sleight of hand verbally, but um, the distinction has been very helpful to a lot of people. I don't know where I heard this, but I, I have this saying from one of my supervisors or something in grad school, but it's just the saying that um, it's not falling off the wagon that's the problem. It's the rolling around in the mud afterwards. <laughs> um, <laughs> I like that. Which I, you know, I, I think really gets it that a lot of people have this kind of automatic habit of really beating themselves up really hard after just very minor setbacks. And I found it, it's quite empowering for people to have a new category to say, okay, this was a bit of a setback. Um, but it's, it's, it does, it's, it's not all or nothing, right? It's not just because there was, and I just think that's such a, and it's not just me. Like I, I've had multiple clients go out of their way to tell me in particular that distinction has been immensely helpful for them. So thank you. Sure. It's back to that <laughs> all that. or none thinking that we talked about right at the beginning. Right. And the original cognitive therapy, cognitive behavioral self-help book was David Burns, Feeling Good. And there on page 40, he lists 10, he calls them, I think, cognitive errors. And number one is all or none thinking. If you can uh, reduce or even remove all or none thinking from your life, uh, it, it still has its place. Light switches are on or off. You know, it's not entirely useless. But um, if you can make that change, you will see the world in a much richer and more realistic way. Um, okay, we're going to kind of head into the the last kind of segment um, of the interview with some kind of bigger, maybe more future forward questions. Um, Although this first one's a, a little retrospective, but when it when it comes to addiction, is there something you've significantly changed your mind on recently? Say over the past few years, or maybe even decade. My mind is changing so often; I lose track. <laughs> uh, I, I know in I, I spend a lot of my time thinking about smart recovery, and if listeners aren't familiar with it, it is a mutual help group that you can attend free meetings from, and it, it's. It teaches people things, but it's also um, a, 
a community because meetings typically develop a, a standing uh, group of members and they're happy to see each other one each week. So for a long time, I wasn't sure what was most important in those meetings. Was it teaching the tools? Was it the community? It's, it's both to some extent. I think at this point, though, we even have some science to say that the community might be more important than the specific tools that people learn. So that's, that's one thing I have, have been thinking about a lot. And uh, just the, the uh, probably seeing how, how significant addictive behavior is in, in all of our lives is, has been something that's changed over time. Yeah, it makes me think of that. There's this journalist, Johan Hari, who, who's written about various things in mental health, including addiction. He's got this great line, which is the opposite of addiction is connection. Um, to in part because of that that finding that, that yeah the importance of community. Um, if if you had to guess, this is kind of the the sort of inverse of that last question. How will we think differently about addiction in fifty years, seventy five years? Well, I hope in the U.S. we'll get uh, a much uh, richer multiple pathway approach. So this the traditional twelve step disease model approach will still be there. Uh, and people can choose it, but we'll also have more medications, uh, smart recovery, and some of the other newer mutual health groups will be more uh, represented and available. Uh, and I, I'm hoping we'll be in a decriminalized um, situation, if not a legalized one. I think people will there'll be less of a push for uh, residential treatment and more work on outpatient. And of course the way really to solve those problems goes way beyond addiction science and addiction is probably uh, around issues like income inequality and inequality of opportunity in education. Uh, because if people would really prefer to lead rich, meaningful lives that don't involve uh, debilitating periods of intoxication if they actually have the, the means to do so. Um, so uh, if we could get society to that place, I think we'd have dramatically fewer addiction problems. How that will actually happen is way beyond my expertise. You attended St. John's College um, in Annapolis for your undergrad. Um, could you talk a little bit about what it, it's a very unique school. Um, so talk a little bit about what makes it so unique and the, the education you got there, but then also maybe a little bit about how it's impacted your thinking and your work in addiction. Thank you for this question. St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland started what it calls its new program in 1937. And it is a throwback in a way to the kind of college education that would have occurred a century or two before where, uh, young adults went to an institution and read the greatest authors typically of the Western world, starting with Homer, Plato, Aristotle, and others. And over four years worked at St. John's, at least you work your way through those great authors. The list is got some arbitrary selections on it, of course, but uh, the three I mentioned and Shakespeare and the Bible and uh, Freud's actually on the list. Um, and others are, are not very arguable. Some of the lesser ones might be. 
And in the process of reading these folks and discussing them, which is equally important, um, you appreciate some of the great challenges that we have as human beings and how we're going to think about, you know, what is reality and what is love and what's important in life and uh, the the great questions. If if you want an introduction to this yourself, you could pick up a copy of the Great Books of the Western World, uh, published, I think, by Britannica. I can't remember, but that's the, it's a fifty-four volume set, um, and and work your way through these books. That's a lifetime reading, right there, fifty-four volumes. Uh, interestingly, for me, I came to appreciate how a book came alive when I had the chance to talk to people about it. Because twice a week, Monday night and Thursday night from 8 to 10 p.m., we would be talking about a part of a work or an entire work. Sometimes we'd spend a week or two just getting through a big book like Thucydides or Plato's Republic. And uh, things that I thought were true about the text I discovered might not be so true, or some of my cherished ideas might not be so accurate. I still go to a once a month great books seminar here in San Diego. We, we have been, I've been in the group for 20 years and we just get together once a month and typically read a shorter selection. Uh, and, and a smart recovery meeting has partly been influenced by this experience of the importance of talking about ideas. It's, uh, I, I think of an intellectual as somebody who loves ideas and just likes to consider them and reshape them. And in that sense, I'm an intellectual. How good a one is it? another question, but I love to you know, think about ideas. And I think it's important that at least some people in society do that. It's not everybody's cup of tea, for sure. But when some people do that, I think it is providing some useful guidance for everybody. Yeah, you know, when I finished reading your, your book for the first time, the, the word that instantly popped into my head was humane. Um, it, it felt like a very, it was very incisive in a lot of ways and, and real and kind of radical even. Um, but it, it had this very gentle approach to considering the human person, like the whole human person. Um, and, and in my experience, I went to a, not exactly a, a great books program, but a, a liberal arts college. And this is one of the things I, I sort of learned from working my way through the the canon is to to really learn how to think deeply about what like what it means to be a human being, which I know sounds grandiose, but n- nothing could be more important. I, I feel like in our profession, right, where that's, that's the whole point. We're sitting across from other human beings, uh, trying to be helpful. Yes, it's it's. Um, I feel deeply honored and privileged to be able to do this. That people come in and bear their souls, so to speak, and and really. Um, open up about the the questions they have that they just can't quite answer, the experiences that puzzle them. And it, as you know, it, it forces us to do that within ourselves also. So I, I feel like I'm in a personal growth experience all day long, which is, is very satisfying. It's, it's sad to see people who haven't had the time to think about some of the things we get to think about and, and some of the problems it causes them. But you know, when you do a podcast like this, it's a chance to share some of the things that, that we have learned and uh, hopefully to a wider audience, even people who can't afford to go to therapy. Right. Speaking of sharing, um, you wrote Drug, Sex, Gambling, and Chocolate in 1998. Uh, do you have another book in there? 
I, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's sex, drugs, gambling, and chocolate is the title. Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. I, oh, man, uh, a workbook for up. overcoming mm, addiction. Okay. I'm sure if you Google you'll still that, you'll, find still, it, you'll yes. still find it's it. It's on yeah. Amazon. Uh, I have thought about writing a book about adult development. Uh, we know that children go through pretty clearly established stages where they understand things or they don't understand things and then they do and then they learn new things. And And the child development psychologists have, have done a great job over the last century or so. Piaget is the, the big name there. and. Um, other psychologists have applied some of those same principles and put them into adult um, uh, concepts uh, or allowed us to see what's happening in adults as well. By about the age of 15 or so, many people reach a developmental level that they don't ever progress past, but some people do. And many of the arguments that we have with people turn out, I think, to be arguments across developmental levels where a person just can't understand what you're talking about because they don't have the conceptual apparatus to do it with. As a simple example, although it doesn't involve adults, is if you're trying to talk to a five-year-old who believes in Santa Claus about how Santa Claus doesn't exist, uh, and we don't actually need to set out the, the milk and cookies, um, that that conversation is going to go nowhere uh, because it's just not not within that child's repertoire. And I think, uh, for instance, a lot of our political arguments involve uh, people at different levels of sophistication. I, I don't know where to take all that, but if, if I ever had the time to read um, those books and uh, the workbook, Sex, Drugs, Gambling, and Chocolate, really was kind of a book report. Um, I do like to think um, that I created some interesting turns of phrase that would might be memorable to people. But in a way, there's nothing original in the book. And I said at the beginning that this is a strength. This is not some guy in California and his ideas about recovery. This is a summary of where the field is at this point. And I'd like to do that again, perhaps uh, about adult developmental level and try to inform public discourse um, in a way that's accepting of people at different developmental levels and, and how they would understand things. But it's, it's a big project and, uh, and maybe that's a retirement project. <laughs> well, that's, you know, that's the genius of your, of your book. And in my opinion, and the, and the reason I really wanted to, to talk to you more is because that while the book is loaded with, um, really helpful, practical content, um, for people struggling with addiction or people who know people who are struggling with addiction, um, it's it's the spirit of it. It's the way it goes about thinking and talking about addiction that that I think is so. I mean, it's captivating, but it's also I think really helpful. I think it's what we need more of is people thinking differently, more flexibly, more humanely about addiction. Um, and and so I think that that is really just a, an achievement and kind of a contribution in itself. Um, okay, last question. Suppose someone is listening right now who has a close friend or a loved one who's really struggling with a serious addiction. What's one thing you would tell that person um, right now um, to help them that you would want them to know or understand that maybe they haven't heard before um, or haven't heard in the right way um, to help them kind of support the, their loved one struggling? Does that make sense? Yes, several things. Uh, one is that statistically speaking, 
the chances are much better than average, much better than 50-50, that your loved one is going to resolve these problems in time. So rather than a bad prognosis, most of these individuals have a good prognosis. It sure doesn't look like it at the moment. And not everyone will, I understood. But on average, people will get better. So that's important. Uh, number two, if you think you have the chance to talk with this person um, in an open way about these problems, the question that you can ask that typically does not arouse defensiveness and might lead to a very productive question uh, discussion is the question, so I'll imagine the following scenario, and I say, Jack, uh, I noticed that you got intoxicated last night and it led to some problems, and I realized that I don't understand much about your relationship with alcohol. What do you like about drinking? Now, Jack's going to look at you and go, huh? What? I thought you were going to beat me up. Well, well you know, yes, I was upset about what happened, but but I, I'm backing away from that at the moment. I just want to find out. Tell me, you like to drink. Why do you like to drink? What's good about it for you? This is, you know, a psychologist recognizes that this is the beginning of a functional analysis. Um, but if you just remember that question, what do you like about this? It allows you to start having a potentially very rich conversation. And you need to be non-judgmental and actively listening. So, okay, so it does this and it does that. So, oh, I get that. Well, that makes sense. So it helps you relax. It helps you socialize. Uh, you're saying otherwise you're not very social. You're not very relaxed. I get it. Alcohol is pretty important for you. And you shut up at that point. It's like you told me, I have acknowledged it. And now you wait and listen and see what happens next. Now, it may be that bringing in a professional at that point might be helpful. Or maybe you could get the person to go to a mutual help group, such as Smart Recovery. Smart Recovery also has a group called Family and Friends. Friends and Family, I get them confused all the time. Um, that is free for the loved one. And there are a few books for loved ones which are um, listed on the smartrecovery.org website. Uh, Beyond Addiction or How to Get Your Loved One Sober. These could be helpful works for. Uh, for loved ones. So yeah, there are things that can be done and keeping in mind that probably this is going to work out okay, uh, even without treatment, uh, is useful to keep in mind. Well, Tom, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast and chatting today. It's, it's been really, it's been a pleasure. It's been illuminating. Um, it's been really helpful, I think. Um, so I really appreciate it. Um, before we sign off, is there a good place um, people can go to learn more about you and more about your work? Um, any place you want to point people to? Our practice website is practicalrecovery.com. And that's the place you can get a hold of me through there, uh, see what we do. It's a pretty big website. You'd probably spend a week reading it, but you can search it for the things you want. Um, yeah, practicalrecovery.com. And if you're interested in SMART, that's smartrecovery.org. Gotcha. Um, and I just want to add here at the end to everybody, um, you know, to anyone either struggling with their own addiction or, or someone else, um, the, if you're curious about this topic, Tom's book, um, Sex, Drugs, Gambling, and Chocolate, gotta get that order right. <laughs> it's really phenomenal. I mean, it's just, it, it's probably the most impactful book I've ever read about addiction. And it's almost always the first book I recommend to people. Um, and it's one of those books, speaking of great books, it's, it's one of those books where I've, I've probably read it four times cover to cover and every single time I really learn something new and walk away from it. So I would just 
Tom's not, uh, you know, slipping me 20s under the table here for this, but I would really um, recommend that people check out the book. Um, it's just really helpful and, and insightful. So thanks again, Tom, for, uh, for coming on. My pleasure, Nick. You have made my day. Thank you so much. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Minds and Mics. If you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you took one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps out a lot. And if you've already done that, please consider sharing Minds and Mics with a friend or family member you think would enjoy it. As always, thank you for continuing to support the show, and we'll see you next time.